because I center like all marginalized people and I recognize youth as an oppressed class. Our young people are really a force to be reckoned with and they're paying attention to what it is that people in positions of power are putting into place and, and, and enacting. We have to ask youth what it is that they need from us before we jump to solutions. We often find that when people enter the legal system, if we can call it that, it's because another system has failed them first. This is the Young People Lead Podcast. Let's activate our generation. Welcome to episode three of season one of the Young People Lead Podcast series. In this episode, we are taking a deep dive into the legal system and looking at the ways that young people are engaging and changing the system. But first, let me tell you about the podcast series. This exciting new series is hosted by youth policy consultants from the American Youth Policy Forum, powered by Children's Defense Fund. This is the podcast that demonstrates young people can and should lead by telling stories from the front lines of where youth are transforming policies for the better, as well as examining research on policies that most affect us. This season, we're standing on policy. That's right, season one is dedicated to standing on policy, activating our generation. Throughout this season, six of us youth policy consultants will take you, our listeners, on a journey to understand how young people are making a difference in the policies that most affect us. We'll talk to experts, researchers, youth leaders, and others working on policies in education, the legal system, child welfare, and the workforce. If you are a young person looking to catalyze change, this podcast is for you. We also invite researchers and leaders and youth-focused organizations across the country to listen in because we are sure you're going to want to hear what our forthright guests and passionate young adult policy consultants have to say. This series is a sister series to the Credible Messenger podcast released in 2022-2023 by AYPF and available wherever you get your podcasts. If you love Credible Messenger podcast, if you care about the well-being of all young people, and or you are excited about seeing young people lead the way to a brighter future, stay tuned. You're going to love this series. Hi, I'm Trail Williams, and I'm the host of episode three of season one of the Young People Lead podcast. This episode is on the youth legal system. I have here with me my co-host, Tyra Beeman, and we are both youth policy consultants with the Children's Defense Fund. Hey, Tyra. Hey, Trell. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me as a co-host on this episode. I am really looking forward to you facilitating this conversation with our amazing guests. And before we jump in, I wanted to ask you, Trell, what motivated you to choose the legal system as your topic? Thank you so much for that question. And thank you again for being here. My interest in the legal system is actually motivated by the perspective it gives us of our entire society. We often find that when people enter the legal system, it's because another system has failed us first. So we're getting a great perspective of all our other social issues that are kind of colliding here. And it gives us a great opportunity to focus on the root causes of those issues. I'm interested in being one of the young people catalyzing the solutions to those issues. You are a young person catalyzing conversations and change around this issue. So. Let's go ahead and introduce you to our guests. So today we have two amazing guests. 
The first one I'll be introducing is Professor Latoya Thomas. She is a criminology and sociology professor based in North Carolina, brings expertise in understanding how the system works, and she works with Triad Abolition Project, also known as TAP, designing curriculum that allows young people to engage in abolition. And I have the pleasure of introducing Jordan Wilson. Jordan is a youth justice campaign associate with the Sentencing Project, where she works to ensure the voices of individuals most impacted by the legal system are incorporated into all decisions regarding legal system policy, practice, and reform. Jordan is also a current youth policy consultant with AYPF and previously served as a Community Connections Associate and Justice Advisor with the Connecticut Justice Alliance. Let's give it up for our guests. Hello, hello. So very excited to be a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we get started, I'll go ahead and introduce myself. So my name is Mantrell Williams, and I go by Trail. So I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina. And in Fayetteville, one in five people live below the poverty line. In terms of Black people, one in four Black people live below the poverty line, which is really crazy to me when you consider that we host the largest military base in the world. So I kind of grew up with that like distinct understanding of how much resources and money were like funneled into the military industrial complex and into prisons, opposed to community programs that could help like lift our community to something different or more beautiful. And that's what kind of uh, led me to go to North Carolina A&T State University, the largest published HBCU in the world to study social work. And that is actually where I met my first guest, Professor Thomas. I also have my co-host, Tyra Beeman, who I'll let introduce herself now. Hey, everyone listening. My name is Tyra Beeman. I am a youth policy consultant with AYPF powered by CDF. I am a passionate youth advocate and educator. Trail, I'm so happy to be on this episode. I connect to this topic on a personal level, having had a lived experience myself, and I'm so happy to be part of this um, this moment here. Thank you so much for joining us, Tyra, and helping all this come together. So, Professor Thomas, why don't you tell us a little bit about what draws you to this work? Just like Trail, I am from North Carolina. I'm actually from Eastern North Carolina. When I was younger, one of my first experiences before I had the language to describe what was going on was recognizing that if I saw someone pulled over and I saw more than one cop car, it was understood that the person was Black. And so when I left home and um, attended college, went to UNCG, I ended up minoring in sociology when I was an um, undergrad. So I got a little bit more language, you know, institutional discrimination, white supremacy. I'm now getting names for these experiences that I had. But kind of my watershed moment was really um, Ferguson, what happened in Ferguson with Mike Brown. I remember being in school and I remember being on social media and seeing all the videos of like snipers being pointed at young people that were like protesting. I'm like, this isn't okay. These people are just showing up to say, we don't want this happening in our communities. And they were met with like violence. Then, you know, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, you know, I could just keep going on with all these different names. Once I kind of saw that, it was like, I couldn't unsee it anymore. And that's how I ended up in um, grad school, majoring in sociology and criminology and being exposed to all of this literature from all of these wonderful people, Angela Davis, Beth Ritchie, W.E.B. Du Bois, all of these people. Once I kind of figured out like what was happening, I realized like, wow, this system is set up to disenfranchise entire groups of people. And I've been seeing it my entire life, but I hadn't necessarily had the language. And that's really what led me into abolition. Thank you. Thank you for that. Jordan, I know you mentioned before that you were like also pretty young when you found this work. 
can you share a little bit about what you experienced or what you saw that made you lean into this work? I got involved in this work through social media. I saw a Facebook post that was asking if you've been incarcerated, if you know someone that's been incarcerated, reach out to us. We're paying $25 an hour. Me being 17, 18 in college, I'm like, $25 an hour, that pays awesome. Let me reach out to them and figure out how I can get involved. And when I got connected with the Connecticut Justice Alliance, I found out that you can use your experiences or the experiences of those closest to you in advocacy measures and to really transform and reform our current policies. I never knew that the experiences of what happened to my family and my uncles and my cousins mattered and really mattered in a sense of advocacy and legislative reform. And so once I got connected with the organization, I learned more about what it meant to do base building and be a part of a coalition and be a part of campaigns and really working with young people that have been directly impacted by the issue what it means to uplift young people and really making sure that people that were put in positions of power were listening to young people. Now, you know, transforming five, six years later, I'm 25 years old with a one-year-old baby boy. I refuse to continue to live into a world that incarcerates our children. Thank you so much for that answer, Jordan. What helps me commit to this work for a lifetime is that determination to help the next generation inherit a much better world than we did, right? And to center or ground our audience and um, what we're talking about when we mention these problems that we grew up around. Approximately 292 children were held in adult prisons in 2021, and the majority of children who were arrested and reside in adult correctional facilities were there for nonviolent offenses. Not that children should even be held with adult for violent offenses, but it just kind of paints that picture that this problem is not an isolated incident, but it's, uh, it's pervasive. And it's growing and would be growing at a faster rate if it wasn't for organizers and worker movement builders, advocates like you all. So now that we've grounded ourselves in the problem, let's talk about what we can do to fix it. Jordan, I'll let you answer this first. So now that you've seen youth-led spaces and you know what it looks like to meaningfully engage youth, how's that affected the way that you engage in this work? It's changed how I do this work drastically. So... Currently at the Sentencing Project, we work on numerous campaigns for numerous states with numerous coalitions. And a lot of our coalitions are led by professionals that went to college, got a degree, and are currently being paid to care about this issue. My role at the Sentencing Project is to make sure that those spaces understand what it means to authentically engage with young people and essentially transform to a place where they are youth-led and youth-centered. You know, a lot of us in the advocacy field have this phrase, nothing about us without us. And me being 25, I said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it, unfortunately. I'm aging out of being a young person. It's something that I have to come to terms with. What I've learned is that we need to be teaching adults how to move out of the way and really be listening to our young people because they're very much aware of what's going on and they're very much capable of enacting the change at which they want to see. And the coalitions that we've been working with are really receptive to that. They understand that they are far removed from the issue other than the fact that they're just passionate about it. It's one thing to be passionate about the issue, but when it's directly impacting you or a neighbor or your community, the fire and energy at which you're going to bring to that issue is going to be very different. Thank you. Thank you for that. Professor Thomas, I know you spoke on how the Triad Abolition Project or TAP is primarily youth-led as well. Has this at all influenced your thinking or the way you engage in this work? 
Oh, yeah. If you're not familiar with abolition, abolition is essentially kind of an ideology, a practice, if you will. Instead of reforming the criminal justice system, we're more interested in the root causes of why people commit crimes so that we go ahead and address them like before they even happen. Like we know harm is going to happen within society, but the ways that we punish it tends to create more harm, you know, within society. So that's really what led me to the community organization, um, Triad Abolition Project. We do a lot of political education. We do a lot of outreach work. We have um, different campaigns. Some of our members have actually had experiences with their family members being killed by the police um, here um, in Winston-Salem. And so having that experience gives you a different perspective than like just what you see on the news. When I say it's like youth led, there's not really like leadership per se, because it's not a hierarchical thing. Most of the people that are doing a majority of the work are far younger than me, know far more than I do. Everyone doesn't necessarily have a formal education, though there are people there that do. You know, as me, someone who's in a lot of academic spaces, I like going into communities like this where I get to learn because I feel like part of what makes people like good teachers is that you have to be willing to learn when you actually are in community with incarcerated people, in community with youth. I'm not just going to talk about these things, but I'm actually going to go out and like do. You can sit in a classroom and talk about all these things. You can do a lot of research, get all this money to do this stuff. But do those people in the community like know you? You're not supposed to be there to like just lead everything. You have to kind of allow the people who belong to these communities to also, you know, create their own solutions. It's not really on me to come into a community and tell them how to fix stuff. Um, I can guide, but like you need to let people be their own heroes. Yeah, I agree with that. It's so much deeper, too, than do they know you, right? Do they trust you? One of the things I've learned being a national partner is I cannot come into anybody's state and tell them what to do. And one of the things I learned being a national partner in coalitions is that I can't come in and expect everybody to just respect me off the bat. I have to build relationships with people. I have to get them to trust me and see me as a person and understand me more as an individual. And one of the things that was really coming up for me while you were talking is that when Trill was asking, like, what does it look like now to have like authentic youth engagement in our coalitions? And, you know, what have I learned being in that space? It's that a lot of people don't value experience as expertise. Oftentimes it's credentials, PhDs, MBAs, whatever, you know, comma acronym you have at the end of your name. And nobody really recognizes that our young people are experiencing the very thing at which we're trying to change. And they are the experts in the situation. Who am I to come in and say, no, actually, I work at this prestigious organization. And actually, I did the research and I have the data and your experience is wrong or invalid. It doesn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. And we really need to be shifting from that standpoint. I wanted to add to that about the lived experiences, because that's such a, a big thing, because a lot of times we get caught up on what the statistics say, but if you do like any sort of qualitative research, what you will find is that People can tell you about what they're experiencing. And a lot of times the quantitative data like lags behind that. I am so excited that you all are bringing up the fact that we have to ask youth what it is that they need from us before we jump to solutions, fixing the problems that exist. And so I want to ask about 
your learning? What have you learned from young people as far as what it is that that young people need when it comes to this conversation around seeking justice in our society as it pertains to the legal system? And I want to center this question also with a quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore as abolition is about presence, not absence. It is about building life-affirming institutions. So Let's talk about these life-affirming institutions, young people being co-creators of these institutions, and what is it that you all have learned in your work and your authentic engagement with the young people that you interface with? One of the biggest things is kind of respect, because I center like all marginalized people, and I recognize youth as an oppressed class in that we don't feel like youth can advocate for themselves or they don't know any better or they don't have this experience, you know, they don't have this knowledge. Sometimes they don't always have like the contextual language to, you know, actually explain it. But when you start having conversations with like young people, you'll see that they are very aware. Whenever I teach like criminology classes, I'll usually start with like, well, why do you think people commit crimes? A majority of those answers don't have to do with like they're bad people. It's literally like, oh, well, people can't afford resources resources or they're, you know, they're not getting health care. They're, they're, you know, they don't have access to these things that they need. Those are like really great answers for them to like not have like, you know, academic knowledge of these things, but they have lived experiences to see these things, you know, kind of showing up. But a lot of times we will try to include people in conversations just to say that they are there, but then not listen to them. That's a really big difference with TAP is that, you know, the people who are like giving like a lot of these suggestions are youth. So we engage them the same way we would engage anybody in the conversation. And so, like I said, I would have to say my answer to that question would be respect. They are experts on their experiences. So we should be hearing what they have to say about what changes and what problems we have. I spend a lot of time talking to young people that are actively incarcerated right now. And one of the things that I've learned is that they are very much aware of their circumstances and very much aware that the system is working against them as the way that it's designed. But one of the things that I've noticed in the conversations that I've had with young people is that they are always most concerned about the younger people coming up underneath them. So perfect example, I've spent some time in Connecticut's Manson Youth Institution, which currently incarcerates um young people between the ages of 15 and 17 as that were charged as if they were adults in an adult facility under the Department of Corrections. And they separate them by age. So you'll have like 16 and 17 year olds in one cottage, 15 year olds in one cottage. And a lot of the times the 16, 17 year olds, when we ask them, you know, what do you need here? It always often has to do with the younger kids down in the lower cottage. And so I say that to say, like, our young people are very much aware of their circumstances and oftentimes kind of feel as if that's it for them, but very optimistic for what's to come for the future generation. And so young people have taught me to be that hope for them, push to change for them while they're pushing for the younger people underneath them, seeing them, you know, want to push their own needs and circumstances to the side and really want to put forth change for the young people that are coming up behind them just inspires me. 
I would agree with that um, about the hope, because I think when you are someone that is engaged in the type of work that we're doing, you know, looking at all these numbers, seeing, you know, hearing all these experiences that people are having, it can be very easy to get on that hopelessness. There's nothing that we can do. And so I think part of what we have to do as adults is to let youth know that like it is not hopeless. We all have a responsibility to the generations that are coming after us to ensure that the things that we have suffered from and the things that we see that we're not necessarily repeating that. And if that's the conversation, Jordan, that you're hearing from the youth that, you know, you're talking to that are incarcerated, I would say that like, that's something that gives me hope. I agree. I agree too. If we built this whole world for the children, right? Then we're taking care of all of us. And that brings me to some of the research we're going to talk about. Jordan, I'll let you go first as we get into this conversation about wraparound services and alternatives to incarceration that actually do lead towards safety much more so than any of the violent measures we're taking. The Sentencing Project releases numerous reports on the youth justice side. Um, We have some reports why youth incarceration fails, effective alternatives to youth incarceration, um, systems reforms to youth incarceration, all centered around advocates, legislatures, um, reporters, as the audience to kind of go back and continue to cultivate conversations around what's better for our young people. And back in June of 2023, we released the report Effective Alternatives to Youth Incarceration. And that report unpacks six alternatives to youth incarceration that have been proven to be effective. Um, They consistently produce better public safety outcomes. They're cheaper than incarceration. And they're overall just better for a young person's life. They don't disrupt their life as much. Those six alternatives to youth incarceration are credible messenger mentoring programs, advocate mentor programs, family-focused multidimensional therapy models, cognitive behavioral therapy, restorative justice interventions, and wraparound programs. Um, The three I want to uplift tonight on the podcast are the credible messenger mentoring programs, the advocate mentor programs, and the restorative justice interventions. Credible Messenger Mentoring essentially hire community residents, people that have a history of involvement in the justice system, to provide intensive support to youth and their families. I think that this is a super important approach to an alternative to incarceration because you're having somebody that can relate to young people, someone from the community, and really giving them a full wraparound approach of like, listen, youngster, I've been there. I understand what it means to be system involved. This is not the route at which you want to go down. And those programs have been proven to be effective and they've been proven to work. Young people really resonate well with their mentor, with their credible messenger. Usually, oftentimes, it's someone that looks like them. It comes from the community at which they are living. So they really understand the advocate mentor programs often are referred to as YAP, Youth Advocate Programs. And they bring in trained community residents to work very intensively with young people and their families. So this brings in that familial support. They're sitting down with the young person, their family, to outline goals in their individual case plans, really working to avoid delinquency and just providing support to that whole child, but their overall family as well. Because there's a lot of factors and root causes that funnel our young people into the system. And oftentimes that whole issue is not being addressed. And when you bring in the family and we're letting you know, you know, we care about you, we care about your circumstances, we care about where you come from. And this is the supports that we're going to put in place, not just for you, but for everybody in your household as well. And I really want to uplift the restorative justice interventions. 
oftentimes you'll hear in the media, you know, there's nothing being done for young people that are committing serious offenses. Restorative justice interventions really target youth that are accused of serious offenses and provides an alternative to traditional court. This specific program model involves victims, the accused young person and their adult to all meet, discuss the harm at which the offense you know, might have caused, and they come together to create plans to repair that harm. And I just think that that's a super important, you know, approach and alternative, because oftentimes we hear about, you know, we need to hold young people accountable. So let's put them in to facilities. And restorative justice models really allows the young person to sit down and see the other person on the other side of their offense, look them in the eye and really take ownership. Accountability is supposed to teach you a skill. A consequence is supposed to teach you a skill, right? And so if you're sitting this young person down and having them sit across the table of a person at which they committed harm to, you're allowing them to one, acknowledge the internal things and the internal factors at which caused them to commit their accused crime. But then you're also allowing them to really get to that empathetic approach with their victim and understand how this affected them and how they can together as a community, as a collective, repair that harm. Having restorative justice interventions really looks at accountability very differently. Ooh, that was that was awesome, Jordan. Um, I, I definitely see all of those as like really great solutions. And I, I'll take a different aspect of this. So when I talk about like life affirming institutions, like as someone who practices abolition, it really kind of goes back to that Angela Davis quote of prisons disappear social problems. And so a lot of like our carceral mindset of like punishing youth, having, you know, police in schools, all of those sorts of things is really about pushing past what the root causes of a lot of these things are. So when I use the term life affirming institutions, what I'm really talking about is a pushback against the systems of harm that we have because a lot of the systems within our society are punishment systems meaning that if you've done something to harm somebody we're going to harm you um, as the you know consequence for what you've done but when you start really looking at like kind of the root causes of like criminal activity you'll find that these are a lot of like social issues so when I think of like life-affirming institutions to kind of replace these systems of harm we have it's really talking about what are the things that we could be funding what are the things that we could be focusing on instead of um you know police so for example i use education as a teacher so we we give a lot of money you know to police within you know each of our counties you can look up you know your county to see what your budget like actually looks like but we defund schools so when i'm talking about life affirming institution example would be education, if education is, you know, the way to lift people out of poverty, then we need to also give people um, the ability to get an education that's equitable for everyone. Because we have barriers in place for the type of education you're getting, you know, going to college, student debt is like a really, really big deal, you know, right now. Um, we also have housing. There is a definitive relationship between housing insecurity and incarceration. 50% of the people in the United States can't afford rent right now. That's a systemic problem. That's not an individual problem. So we can't really financial literacy our way out of that 
something as simple as providing housing to everyone. Because what we know is that when people end up within the prison system, they're more likely to also have housing instability because we also strip people of their rights once they get out of prison for certain crimes. So we're already creating, you know, these sorts of barriers. So it's it's kind of a, a catch-22. Like the reason why you're in there might be because you don't have resources. And then when you get out, we, we're going to continue to deny you those resources and then be surprised when you end up back, you know, in the same place. But if we already provided all of those resources, that could do a, a lot to kind of alleviate the issues. And the other one would be um, access to healthcare. When you think about addiction as a public health issue, then we can have a different conversation. And if we're preventing people from, you know, getting access to these things, then they're more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system. And I do want to be clear in saying that this isn't me saying that people who have any sort of like mental health or anything is connected to crime because really if you have any sort of disability you're more likely to be a victim of crime than you are to actually be uh like the person that is perpetrating all of these would be examples of life affirming institutions because when we're talking about life affirming we're talking about creating things so that people can live a full healthy um happy sort of life we know that people need food everyone does have access to food Instead of putting people in jail for stealing, a life-affirming institution would ask, well, why are people stealing baby formula? Why are people stealing food? Because if we are locking up baby formula because people are stealing it, I would actually say them stealing it is less of a problem than why do they have to steal it? So we're not necessarily going to be able to like stop all harm from happening within society, which tends to be a really big critique of abolitionists. And we will address like the harm to your point, Jordan, about like restorative justice. But at the same time, there are definitely things that we could be doing to kind of prevent a lot of this stuff from happening. I just wanted to comment on helping the listener understand life affirming institutions aim to take resources out of the harmful institutions that exist and lift up, fund more of those institutions that we know affirm our humanity, right? So I love that. Thank you. One of the things I've come to learn in the advocacy space is people that work in our criminal legal system don't understand what it means to address root causes of crime. Oftentimes you'll see prosecutors, district attorneys, whoever it is that gets that case file is only looking at the offense at which brought that file to their desk. And now when we start talking about kids that get incarcerated in the adult criminal system, you don't have like a juvenile probation officer that goes and does a case study where they go talk to teachers, where they go talk to the parents, where they go talk to the administrators at the school to paint a picture of what exactly is going on in that young person's world to kind of help understand why they maybe committed the offense at which they committed. There are a lot of different factors, to your point, Professor Thomas, that are funneling our young people into the system, and they are very easy to answer. Like you said, people should not be having to steal food and then being locked up for it. That should not be a solution to anybody's, you know, food insecurity or housing insecurity or instability. You know, we should be funding 211 and services so where people can have access to, to shelters and warming centers and really giving people the access to housing. And we need to be having a conversation around how do we address that? Because there is a root cause that's bringing that young people to your courtroom. 
Yeah. And who gets to shape the narrative around these conversations? We're looking at what is crime? How do we decide who is being punished? Who gets to actually write the laws? And so even when we think about like these social issues, when we start talking about like these high incidences of like crime, most of the time we're talking to police officers. We're talking to people that get a direct benefit from the system functioning the way that it does. But if we start talking about, you know, youth that are quote unquote misbehaving in schools, we're not talking to people that are experts in child development because crime is a socially constructed thing. So overall, what I really heard was the lack of collective self-determination. That's what I truly heard coming out of this conversation. The world around us doesn't look like any of our peers would prefer it to. And so I have to ask you guys, with that thinking, with us coming together to create a new world, build a new world, what is our long-term vision for safety in our communities? Again, for me, it really goes back to those life-affirming institutions, because as long as there are systems of harm, there are going to be people being harmed. So first of all, we need to respect that incarcerated people still have a right to exist within society, that just because you have done harm to someone doesn't mean that you should be thrown away by society. Of course, we have to address the harm, but it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, get rid of you as an individual within the society. Systems change after people's minds change. It's hard for people to imagine worlds outside of what they're living in. So you have to kind of expose people to kind of ideas so that they know that, well, just because you've been taught this way doesn't mean that it has to stay this way. We shouldn't continue to live in a society that that thinks incarcerating our children is okay. And knowing that like I'm raising a black man who's going to be a black man in America, like I'm nervous. And so all I envision is exactly what Professor Thomas was saying around, you know, getting people's minds to change. We need to get people to that other side of understanding that this is an issue that's impacting all of us as a society and we need to address it. I don't know. My vision is we start treating people like people. You know, we stop incarcerating our kids. We start giving everybody the resources that they need. We start understanding how this is impacting black and brown people. And it shouldn't be our young people are really a force to be reckoned with. And they're paying attention to what it is that people in positions of power are putting into place and, and, and enacting. And it's affecting them greatly in harmful ways. And I just refuse to allow that to be the world at which my son grows up or has to be a part of and or fight up against. No, I love that answer. Because honestly, when I most often when I think about my long term vision for safety, it is as simple as a vision for our children. Like when people ask me to imagine a future, we, we come here to imagine together, right? What I imagine is children laughing, playing, and growing up in a world where they have all their needs met, right? Where parents don't have to struggle and make tough decisions between themselves and their children. Thank you, Jordan and Professor Thomas, for your work your hearts, your leadership, and your passion for young people when it comes to them being the leading voices, um, the leading change makers in these, in, the, in these movements. I want to um, ask you all to leave listeners with a call to action, moving us forward in this conversation, bringing about actual change that we can see, but also that the generations to come will will see and remember. So this particular call to action is not for young people, but it's for everybody else that's potentially listening that does not identify as a young person. Sometime this week, next week, end of the month, figure out how you can best support a young person. 
that's all our young people need is somebody to just support them. We talked a lot on the episode about respect, listening to them, trusting them, just figure out what that support looks like. It might be loaning them $5 for lunch. It might be giving them a ride to baseball practice, whatever it is, figure out when you're capable, what it looks like to support a young person. And I think for our young people listening, a call to action is figure out how you can learn more. And what I mean by that is we talked a lot about a bunch of different stuff, right? On the podcast today, we talked about programs that worked. We talked about, you know, the housing issue and we talked about life affirming institutions and, and a bunch of different things. Figure out how you can learn more about those topics that we talked about, you know, how you can get involved or find a person to ask more questions about or reach out, you know, to Trill or Professor Thomas on the podcast and figure out you know, how you can learn more, because I feel like education is just so important for our young people and figuring out, you know, how you can learn more and get involved more is just so important. My call to action, especially as someone who educates around this sort of thing, is before you start kind of offering any sort of perspective, like learn what's going on. Like you need to, you know, take some time to like educate yourself. Uh, and more importantly, um, like Jordan said, it's it's really important to focus on those that are more marginalized than you. Um, and that would be youth, you know, disabled, LGBTQIA people, um, people from outside, people from the global South. Um, anyone that is more marginalized than you can probably tell you a lot about what's actually happening. So you have to kind of expose yourself to, you know, different sorts of perspectives to understand the lived realities of like other people. And that inco includes incarcerated people. I would also say one of the biggest things um, and why I connect so well to youth is speaking truth to power. It is hard to have moral courage to know that sometimes you are going to have to stand alone. And it's okay to stand alone because when, you know, history comes back and looks on this stuff, you can say that, you know, you were a part of like that change and just understanding that change doesn't happen with an individual. You may not see the changes or the, you know, the seeds that you're putting out in your lifetime, but generations to come, every generation is a little bit more free than the previous one. And I find it to be kind of our responsibility to kind of create that freedom for whoever's coming after us. As far as my call to action is concerned, it's to build community. Never get discouraged by how small the number of people next to you may seem. Because it's, it's much bigger than you think. James Baldwin, he says something so beautiful to me that really like highlights, I think, my life in this, this, this time period we live in, but my life overall. He says, and speaking to his nephew, a letter to my nephew, he writes, if we had not loved each other, we wouldn't have survived. And now you must survive because we love you. So my final call to action is to work really hard, do the hard work of loving each other, to like love your community members and um, to like spread that love, to advocate for it and encourage the people around you to love each other because we must survive. This world is not existing in a way that most people would prefer that it does, right? In the same way that most Americans support a much healthier, more beautiful world, the global community does as well. The power dynamic has just been shifted to be in the hands of a small group of people, right? But we know that we're the, the silent majority that's like growing louder and, and we have an opportunity to build a, a more beautiful world. Sometimes in the most chaotic moments is when it becomes clear that we have not just the creative power, but the collective power between each other within our communities to, to build something 
we can actually respect and be proud of. But when Angela Davis was arrested in 1970, James Baldwin wrote her an open letter titled In Care of the Silent Majority. Baldwin writes, one might have hoped that by this hour, the very sight of chains on black flesh or the very sight of chains at all would be so intolerable a sight for the American people and so unbearable a memory that they themselves would spontaneously rise up and strike off the manacles. But no, they appear to glory in their chains now more than ever. They appear to measure their safety and change in corpses. See, it's my opinion that in a country that arrests over 265,000 children per year, one in three of which are black, we don't have a youth justice system. We have a, a youth criminalization system. Like, and this is ultimately what led me to abolition, what led me to care as a response to violence, working to create a world where every child grows up having all they need to thrive in. I hope some of this conversation we had leads our listeners closer to that world as well. First, I want to thank my co-host, Tyra Beeman. You've been so great along this whole process. You were amazing today. And I could not have done this without your support, truly, truly. And I also want to thank Jordan and Professor Thomas. Y'all are amazing peers, amazing mentors. I, I learned so much just in this process. It's been like huge spiritual development, intellectual development. Yes, yeah, just so much. And um, this will be far from the last time we worked together. And you guys can always remember in this time, right? This is where we were, the Conscious Observers. Well, thank you so much for um, having me. It is actually an honor to be up here. It's, it's very humbling. So I'm really glad to be able to come up here and kind of share my knowledge perspective on the kind of all the things that I've seen. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. Um, it actually really is an honor to be here in a different capacity than as a YPC. Um, we wear so many hats as youth advocates. It's like, we're a young person. We have our full-time jobs. We're also consultants. And so I'm really grateful to be a part of the process in my professional capacity and looking forward to being on my episode of the podcast when it comes up. <laughs> oh, thank you guys again. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to episode three, Standing on Policy. Activating Our Generation, the first season in the Young People Lead podcast, led by youth policy consultants from the American Youth Policy Forum, powered by a Children's Defense Fund. This is the podcast that demonstrates young people can and should lead by telling stories from the front lines of youth policy changing, as well as examining the research of the policies that most affect us. This series is a sister series to the Credible Messenger podcast released in 2022 and 2023 by AYPF and available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is funded by American Youth Policy Forum, powered by Children's Defense Fund in collaboration with the American Institutes for Research. Season one of Young People Lead, Standing on Policy, Activating Our Generation is hosted and directed by a group of youth policy consultants from AYPF, including Kyla Woods, Tyra Beeman. Jordan Wilson, Daphne Sanchez, and me, Trail Williams. This episode was directed and hosted by me, Trail Williams. We believe that young people can lead in the legal system, child welfare, education, and the workforce to ensure policies that encourage our success. 
This show is produced, edited, and mixed by Sarah Daggett of Daggett Consulting, LLC. Thanks for listening. The next episode is on the workforce, hosted by Cody Rooney and co-hosted by Kyla Woods. Join us for a fruitful conversation with guests Mary Kay Dugan and Alexis Abina. See you there.